Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, does our region have what it takes to attract the best workers? What will happen, I think, in, in the future as we move further into the 21st century, is that companies are not going to go to the lowest cost of doing business. They're going to go where people want to live. Can you play a game without a scorekeeper? In economic development, we depend upon a few people in our region to tell us the score. One of the most consistent voices who always provides insights that are useful is our next guest, Terry Clower. Terry's a director for the Center for Regional Analysis at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. He's done many important studies over the years, and we're going to talk today about some recent insights he and his team have come up with that will help us better understand what makes the region grow and what important challenges we must overcome. We're going to focus on two issues today. The first one is a recent study that Terry and his team have done around the immigrant workforce. There's some important teachings there. And secondarily, how we can change the discussion of economic development in our region to make it more holistic. Terry, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Well, let's start first with the immigrant survey. You and the team just looked at our immigrant workforce. You have some really important findings for us. I think it's really important to understand. So Spencer Scheinholz, our research associate and Mark White, our deputy director, did the work of pulling together some of the census data, digging deep into what we call the micro sample data to look at the jobs that our immigrant workforce in this region has. And I, I mean, we know they're important. We see them every day. We see the construction crews. We see the people who are doing our lawns, you know, cleaning offices and many other things. But I'm not sure that we fully recognize just how important and how big a part of our labor force these immigrant workers are. Give me an example of where they're really important. So let's think, for example, in construction. Now, you might not you know, be totally surprised, but over half of the construction workers in this region are non-native. Uh, and, and then you think about in terms of services that we have, uh, almost half of our, our the folks that are doing things like lawn care and those kind of services are. But even in some of our high-tech fields, so computer and mathematical occupations, 10% of our workforce in this area are actually non-native, non-citizen workers. And what we're getting at here in your study, your data doesn't delineate between people that are here with legal status or illegal status per se, right? That's correct. But by the same token, it would seem to me because of the nature of the data, my guess is most of these people that are being reported are probably legal employed because they're, they're willing to be on a payroll report and so forth. So let's just, for the moment of discussion, 50% of our construction workers are people who have been in this country less than 10 years, less than five, you know, not a long mm -hmm. time. They're immigrants. They're, they're people coming here. In a time where Unemployment rates, historical lows, labor market's really tight, inflation's going up. Is it just incredibly short-sighted, I hate to bury the lead, but is it incredibly short-sighted to be beaten on immigrants at a time when they're a valuable part of our workforce? Well, I think it is. And, you know, what it says is certainly we believe in rule of law and that you should have that. But a rational policy of immigration would have guest worker programs, workforce programs, and for people that have been here for a while, pathways that might eventually involve citizenship. I mean, there, there are certain, you know, it's not opening the borders in just a free-for-all. I don't believe in that. But understand, though, that in our particular region, many of these people have been here for a long time. So if you go back, if we go back and look at the data, 
it, well over half of these people have been here more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and, a, and a greatest hunk of them actually came in the 2010 to 2010 period. So we're only talking about a, a roughly about 5% of the immigrant workforce have been here for less than three years. So as we look at this issue uh, here in the region, it sounds to me that it's fair to say that whatever the dopamine hit we might get from engaging this issue from an emotional standpoint, the data suggests that it's going to have a profound effect upon our local economy, how it plays out. Well, sure. And, it, and it's also, even if you, let's tie it into something. We we can't talk about economic development now without talking about, it, say, an Amazon or, or Apple, you know, big locations coming in. But the way you get economic impacts of that, it's not just their jobs. It's all those other jobs that create in the economy. Unfortunately, we're in the situation, though, you start doing that and you at the same time you're trying to push out the immigrant workforce somehow or another, deport them, whatever you're going to do. You're not going to get those impacts because who's going to do those jobs? Mm. Who's going to build the buildings that's going to house the new companies coming in? Who's going to build the housing that we need to support that new workforce? So in effect, what happens in whether it's failure to attract workers from a talent standpoint or retain workers we have is economic potential is lost because if people aren't working, you're not creating output. That's right. Okay. Now let's turn our attention to the second part I promised our audience we focus on today, which is you're working over at the the center towards trying to figure out a new paradigm for looking at economic development. You know, when people think about economic development, I think most people think about it from the standpoint of elephant hunting, you know, bringing mm-hmm. in the next big company. That's mm-hmm. where a lot of focus goes, like an Amazon or an Apple. But that you don't think that's the right paradigm for the 21st century. It's not. And, and part of this is the shift in the nature of our work. Economic development in terms of smokestack chasing, it was called in the old days, or bagging the buffalo, whatever it might be, actually came about more from manufacturing employment, logistics, because for those companies, the cost of the, the land, the cost of the building... Uh, and labor costs still matter dramatically. Now, labor cost matters for any company, of course, but but it was really key to success and competition in that level. It was cost-driven. But as we've gotten more and more into technology and information industries, and particularly in this region where the manufacturing base is so small, you know, it's just not that big a piece of it, it is really very much our ability to have the workforce that you need. And some of this goes back to even the things that Richard Florida talked about in the creative class and all that. How do you attract people that and what it really comes to quality of life and our ability to attract and attain the talent that these companies need? Because what will happen, I think, in, in the future as we move further into the 21st century is that companies are not going to go to the lowest cost of doing business. They're going to go where people want to live. Well, I think that we're definitely moving towards a situation where the workforce is going to be bifurcated by technology and the highly valuable people who can work with artificial intelligence and, and be skilled are going to have a lot of opportunities in front of them. Terry, how much of this, though, is really amenable to data analysis? You know, you talk about quality of life. Can you really measure quality of life? Yeah, and we can keep we can do it. Uh, it's a matter of the features and things that we want. So, do we have park lane? Do we have parklands? Do we have, in some cases now with millennials, they're very you know alternative transportation. In other words, do you have bike lanes available? I mean, think about driving around in D.C. Would you want to be riding a bicycle on the streets of D.C.? You know, so I mean, it's a it's a real challenge in that. So yes, there are ways we can measure it, but some of it is one that how active are we being in our planning and our economic development efforts to really say. 
do we have the features that people need to live happy, fruitful lives? Well, Terry, thanks a lot for taking the time and coming in. And congratulations on the work that you and your team did around immigrants. I think it's going to be very helpful to our regional conversation. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It was Terry Clower. He's director for the Center for Regional Analysis at George Mason University. And we want to say a special thank you to these show's sponsors. What's working in Washington wouldn't happen without the support of other organizations here in town who want to make a difference by highlighting how a region grows. Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation, their business development team can help you find the best talent and ideal location and the latest in market and business intelligence. Your business starts with MCEDC. Connect with them at thinkmoco.com. And TEDCO, TEDCO invests in early stage and life sciences companies. It produces resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Tedco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.tedco.md. And Jones Lang LaSalle, they're a leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy-led approach and expert implementation results in cost-effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.